This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. So the Supreme Court is about to take up what could be one of the most dangerous tax cases uh, since Wayfair. And it is the Moore case. It is a case that uh, the entire tax professional community is watching. And we're here to kind of dissect it and what the potential outcomes could be, what the potential ramifications could be. And I'm uh, gratefully here with my my friend, Garrett Watson, uh, from the Tax Foundation. Uh, they have done so much uh, research written uh, about this. And Garrett, it's always a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat. So um, Garrett, if you would, can you, let's just start right off with what, um, what are the facts of this case? What, what happened and how, how did this end up in the Supreme Court? Sure. So yes, a few months ago, the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert to the case Moore v. United States, which is currently now um, basically in the brief submission process by um, all the parties. Uh, the Moores, uh, the, the plaintiffs in this case have submitted their brief and they're now friend of the court briefs and other briefs being submitted. Uh, they will be held. It will be heard before the court likely, I believe, uh, later this month or early next month. Um, I don't believe it's been formally scheduled yet, but that will be coming. Uh, and, and it's anticipated that a decision would be um, would be sent out um, by the summer, likely by June, as part of the Supreme Court's uh, broader list of cases they're taking this session. Um, long story short, this case, yeah, as you just mentioned, Tom, is really uh, could be a very pivotal one for the tax policy uh, and uh, community, for the tax um, practitioner community, and anyone who's who's working through um, sort of the the broader tax space. Uh, and that's because the Moors um, are. Uh, making uh, potentially um, a, a case that could uh, have ramifications across the tax system. Uh, specifically, they're looking at, as part of the 2017 tax law that was passed in December of 17, uh, we basically had a, a pretty big reform of the, uh, particularly of the corporate tax system or a broader business tax system internationally, where we moved from uh, having a worldwide form of taxation, moved closer to a territorial system. The idea behind that being that that better, that was more consistent with the way in which other countries taxed international business uh, and made the U.S. more competitive. Uh, but as part of that, uh, as many folks know here, but just as a review, there were a lot of um, foreign earnings that were domiciled abroad that were not subject to tax under prior law uh, that uh, Congress wanted to encourage to come back to be repatriated to the United States. But they wanted to, to balance that uh, with uh, the fact that this uh, was previously untaxed earnings who um, that should be subject to some tax, and they wanted to come to some grand bargain um, this has happened in the past, including, uh, I believe, in the 80s, where, where there was some uh, repeat, repatriation as well. So they came up with what is known as Section 965, the deemed repatriation tax. It's also commonly known as a transition tax, uh, where folks with uh, uh, earnings abroad are subject to um, to tax, though at a, um, a rate lower than the, the statutory rate. And it depends on the um, um, whether or not it's liquid, right? There's several rules related to that. But it's but the important part of that is it was deemed, meaning it didn't matter where the physical location of these earnings were. If you left them abroad or you brought them back, you're going to end up having to pay tax. Notably, this impacted both, uh, of course, impacts uh, uh, C corporations with earnings, but also, of course, impacts shareholders of folks uh, who may have um, some exposure indirectly from this deemed repatriation. And that's where the Moors come in, where they yeah. have... Go ahead. Let me ask you a question on that. So... The Moors aren't the ones being, it's not the shareholders being taxed, right? It's the company Correct. being taxed. So the Correct. Moors themselves were not um, being asked to, to pony up tax. 
Right, right. So they they are uh, they own shares in a foreign, uh, in, I believe it's a, it's an Indian based company, Kiss and Craft, uh, which uh, itself has some deemed uh, uh, deemed repatriation uh, tax owed. And the argument is uh, that despite the fact that they are um, uh, uh, have have ownership here, they are they have not realized any income. Right, they're merely owners, but they are getting uh, uh, some uh, impact on their overall income. Um, from the company indirectly, right, as shareholders, uh, because of this demerepatriation tax. And so basically it comes down to whether or not this could be considered um, a tax that is uh, that is direct, uh, that has not been apportioned, that would therefore not be constitutional. Uh, and that's basically the, you know, the very long story short on the, the legal basis for their case is that 965 um, is something closer to a wealth tax than a, a traditional tax on uh, earnings from pastor businesses that we typically see. Um, and so, and just, just to, just to finish up the recap here, this was taken before the ninth circuit. Tom and I were just talking about this right before the recording, which basically what happened there was they, um, uh, were very skeptical of the Morris claims and, uh, went, had a very sort of sweeping, uh, interpretation of the, of the authority of Congress and others to, uh, to set tax law, uh, that could potentially be used as a, um, as a way to justify even, even wealth taxation under current, current law. Part of what's going on here is a, is a reaction to that. Uh, to, the last thing I'll mention real quick is um, th there's really two issues here that are related but still distinct. One is on realization and the question of what is realization in the context of this particular arrangement. But the second is also on control. I think that matters too, right? The definition of what control means because Congress, uh, not just here, but also in say subpart F rules and other rules, um, have defined control in a way that is um, specific to uh, countering avoidance in the tax code, meaning uh, very specifically what they wanted to avoid was having um, a, you know, a bunch of uh, shareholders, each of which having minority control, banding together in the U.S., getting majority control, and then uh, using that to avoid tax. So they've actually defined control in a way that says, hey, even if you're a minority shareholder, if you are with other U.S. shareholders that constitute a majority, that, for purposes of subpart F and other anti-avoidance rules, constitutes control. And there's some questions there as to whether or not that makes sense, but that's often sort of just to suppose or overlapped with this realization question. Got it. So so thank you for that summary. So let, let's kind of back up a little bit. Uh, the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit, the way I read the Ninth Circuit decision is they basically said Congress can do whatever it wants when it comes to tax. Is that is that a, is it that fair? Is it is it that broad? I, I think it's closer to that summary than than in the alternative. I think for sure. Um, in that they um, and it's been pointed to that the, the this Ninth Circuit decision um, could be um, could open the door to a variety of of, um, of taxes that would traditionally be considered folks would be very skeptical of from a constitutional basis, particularly as it relates to taxes on uh, on wealth. Um, because and this is something that's been dealt with at the state level as well, because you can try to creatively interpret certain taxes uh, to avoid it being a, a direct tax on on wealth. Um, uh, most notably, I believe it was in, in Washington state where they tried to interpret uh, where they, they can't tax income. Instead, they reinterpreted it to mean it was an excise tax on doing business, even though it had all the traits of taxing right. income. So there well, are ways to reinterpret there's, these things. There's a very, there's a very, I think there's a very big question whether that Washington capital gains tax is uh, constitutional. So yes. um, that will that's another case that I'm sure that we'll be that we'll be watching. And Washington, I'm sure, is watching the Moore case very carefully yes. um, because they're that they have, I think, some issues, uh, similar issues. So here's a question I've got. So um, 
So isn't every corporate tax basically a tax on wealth? I mean, how, uh, uh, the, the, because the, the Supreme Court has held that corporations are persons, hmm. right? They're not individuals, but they are, they are a person. Um, we, we had a case, what, a few years ago where um, the court held that they have, the corporations have rights as persons and taxpayers. And so um, even though they're owned by individuals, um, is, is this a, do you think this is pretty easy for them to say, for the Supreme Court to say, well, this is really narrow here and look and actually hold against the Moors while still saying that um, you, you can't have, you know, a, a tax on unrealized income because the, the reality is it's not a tax on them. It is a tax on the corporation. And if the corporation is a person, I, I believe it was the Hobby Lobby case where um, the, the Supreme Court said, well, look, Hobby Lobby is a person. They can, they, they have rights as a person because they're a tax paying entity and you don't have to go to the shareholders. You know, it's not just the shareholders have rights. The corporation itself has rights. And so could the court, do you think, distinguish just based on that alone? Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there where there, I think there is an opportunity for the court to uh, basically take the line that um, reminding folks that are, are arguing that um, presumably in a majority opinion that the uh, Ninth Circuit's interpretation is very uh, broad interpretation of um of the ability of uh, Congress or other policymakers federally to um, enact uh, wealth taxes or or taxes that that are very close to wealth taxes that are creatively reinterpreted um, are not constitutional, likely not constitutional. That's just reaffirming something that we've most folks in the in the legal in the tax law space generally agree with. Um, of course, not not universally, but that's generally been the the commonly accepted uh, understanding. Sort of reaffirming that and and casting doubt on what the ninth, the Ninth Circuit's interpretation, while also simultaneously not completely knocking out the existing system of business taxation that we have in the U.S. That includes 965. That also includes the way in which we tax corporations, which I, which as you just said, I mean, it's um, I, I do think even though there is some um, when it comes to the impact on shareholders, realization based impacts, right? Um, overall, when we tax C corporations on the basis of their net earnings, it's on the basis of their income. It is, an, it, it is fundamental. And that's something that's been, that's been understand, understood in the, in the history of, of, and of tax it, law. And it's realized um, income. Say that again? It's realized income. Exactly. Yes. And so, and, so, and, and then ultimately the shareholder um, in the form of, you know, the, the, the impact on dividends, and then ultimately the capital gain or loss that they take when they decide to sell um, uh, sees the impact of that, of course, um, some combination of shareholders and, and workers and others. Uh, and so that, but but that fact shouldn't shouldn't we shouldn't muddy things right by by trying to conflate these two things. And, and I think the risk is if if the sort of more, more maximalist sort of view wins out, um, uh, in the hope that that would rule out a wealth tax, it could also really disrupt business taxation. Yeah. If yeah so let's let, let's talk uh, about that, that for a second. Yeah. Okay, so specifically, uh, some of the commentators um, have suggested that this might interfere with tech the way. Uh, partnerships and S corporations are taxed. And um, because obviously, so Morris had what, 13%, I believe, right. um, ownership. And so they're minority shareholder. They really have no control. Mm. I mean, the reality is, in fact, they've forgotten about it completely, right? And uh, until they get the notice saying, hey, by the way, uh, just know that, you know, this is this is going on. I'm not sure why they would have gotten a notice as uh, as as a shareholder, but they 
apparently did. And right. uh, obviously the courts felt like they had standing to um, to file this suit. That, mm-hmm. that was not thrown out by either the, um, right. the original court or the Ninth Circuit. And um, clearly Supreme Court has said, yes, they have standing, else they could have thrown it out too. Um, but let's look at the, this S corporation and partnership because that's one of the arguments is, well, wait a minute. If you decide not only, if you decide in favor of the Morris, not only do you eliminate all the tax that was collected on the repatriation tax, which is an enormous amount of money because it's like $2 trillion, I think, that um, uh, effectively was being taxed, something like that. I think yeah, it's something like if the whole thing were, um, uh, you know, struck down, including retroactively, it's uh, yeah, it's several trillion actual earnings. The total amount of tax was somewhere around 350 billion. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I thought. It, it, was, yeah. it was an enormous amount of tax. And, and you know, it was less because of, you know, Fiddy and, you know, all the things they did right. to give them basically make it easy for them um, right. to, to pay that tax. Right. Look, we just bring the money back. We want the money in the U.S. We want it functional in the U.S. Um, my take on actually that law was actually, I think the corporate provisions in the 2017 Act were the best provisions of the mm-hmm. 2017 Act, both the reduction of the tax rate as well as going to a territorial. Um, I, I I think the fitty guilty regime is not a bad regime. I mean, it's complex, but it's not a bad mm-hmm. regime. And, uh, and, and it seems to have worked just fine, actually, which is, you know, really interesting. Um, but again, one of the questions is there's when you have commentators saying, well, this could affect partnership and S corporations. There are lots of minority shareholders in S corporations, lots of minority, lots of limited partners in partnerships that absolutely get a tax liability that's frankly far more egregious than what the Moors had. I mean, the Moors, all it affected was technically the value of their stock. But the reality is it didn't affect them directly at all. It was the corporation. If you can separate the person from the, the shareholder from the corporation, the Moors have no case, which I, I think is part of what the Ninth Circuit was suggesting. But um, but with an S corporation, let's say a non-voting shareholder or a, a limited partner, they don't have any vote and it is a tax on them. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I think that's right, and and that's that's exactly why I was pointing to this this question. There's a yeah, separate question that's come up about control, which is part and parcel of this, right? Which is, you know, we have a broader system um, of defining, you know, control foreign corporations and and subpart F for international sort of uh, tax liability calculations in the U.S. and uh, that was defined statutorily, where as a, as I went earlier, right, you can have individually minority control, um, but the, the the definition of control um, for purposes of entering into that regime. Uh, is not um, consistent with the intuitive definition, right? And that's precisely because they defined it as uh, control amongst U.S., all the U.S. shareholders, not just individuals, even if there's no relationship. And that was done in Congress to ensure that folks couldn't, you know, collude or, or work together to, um, in the context of a, of a foreign control corporation, um, to avoid tax. And so, uh, but the big thing there is, and I think the thing that's sometimes missed, and this is something, something George Callis, uh, former tax counsel um, on Ways and Means, was very te- integral to, uh, building out a lot of the 2017 tax law rules, he pointed out that um, that the definition of control is a statutory one. It's not one that's constitutional. The realization question, the question of whether or not something is a direct or indirect tax is a constitutional question. And depending on your interpretation there, you can create a consistent, at least an internally consistent case for why 
965 or these other things are not um, uh, uh, constitutional. We may not agree with it, but the control question is is sort of um, can be a bit of a sidetrack because there's no it, it's a statutory question. It's a question of interpretation, but um, arguably there's no constitutional question there because Congress has a statutory authority to define control however they like. Um, and so you'd have to create some sort of constitutional question for why that um, matters in the context of, of um, 965 and these other things. Um, I also want to mention, of course, and as we outlined in our piece at, at Tax Foundation, there are, and as others have pointed out, including Mindy Hertzfeld um, at Tax Notes, there are a variety of other things, including um, uh, subpart F, CFC rules, mark to market rules are also. Well, um, yeah. So, so let's let's get to that. Okay. But let's let let just just for a second, let, let's yeah. let's clear up the S corp and the partnership. Um, how is so if if they decide that because um, saying you know you have the control issue that would be one of the Moore's arguments clearly right. I, we didn't have control over this um, but another of the, but then at the same time <laughs> how can you rule for the Moors and rule against and and not rule for partners limited partners for example because right. they yes. are taxed yeah. right that, and they right. are yeah, not getting consistent. the money. Yeah, this is how, how the dominoes fall, right? If you start accepting the, the core premises of the Moors, it's hard to know what is the guiding principle by which we stop, right? Um, you can, I think, create a middle ground where you're talking about, you know, hey, well tax the Ninth Circuit's interpretation and wealth taxes are still not constitutional. That's fine. But the rest of this is preserved. But yeah, once you start asking the questions about whether or not 965 and the, is constitutional, the rest of it is very hard to separate out, right? And this could... Um, yeah, knock out a, a ton of, of related provisions that have very similar structures. Um, so so could you, could they instead, could they look at just the realized versus unrealized? Because very clearly a limited yes. partner realizes, I mean, right. that that's income that's been realized by the partnership, right? That's, right. that's, that's income that's been realized by the S corporation. And could they, they go straight to the realized unrealized? So let's talk about the realized unrealized because we have unrealized taxation in the that's law. Right. We yep. have mark to mark to market exactly. rules in the law, which is unrealized income. So how how do you reconcile that with the? I, I know you guys have said no wealth taxes are unconstitutional. I believe you said that, mm -hmm. um, and of course we all hope they are because none of us want a wealth tax because it's the, the worst kind of tax. Um, but how do you reconcile that mark to market with a realized versus unrealized? Do you throw that one out? Yeah, I, I think once you start, yeah, uh, deciding that that this is uh, the 95 is thrown out on the basis of realization, that that is exactly when it starts imperiling these other aspects of the tax code. Mark to market's a good one. I think the broader subpart F regime starts being um, under question. Uh, there are even questions about whether or not maybe the book minimum tax that was recently passed could be complicated because there are, um, of course, you're talking about using a different set of books uh, that many of which have uh, uh, stuff that's on the books that isn't realized, right? And so. Um, yeah, the, the the ball of yarn here starts unwinding very quickly. Um, and I think that the underlying sort of policy theory here, sort of sitting, sitting aside the legal stuff real quick, is um, the hope is maybe this is an opportunity to be, yes, disruptive um, with the tax system, but in that sort of disruption, we could create something better. The problem is historically, we really haven't seen that in tax or elsewhere. When you create a lot of chaos and disruption, it, it could result in a system that's the worst of all worlds or even even worse than we currently you, have. You, so I think- Brazil. Exactly. So I think prudence here on the part of, you know, the legal merits are the legal merits and then the justices will decide that but from a policy perspective, you know, trying to introduce disruption for the sake of trying to, you know, 
push the ball forward may not turn out the way in which those advocates might hope. And I think that's that's the worry um, on the part of folks who are worried about this case. Okay, so so one thing they could do is they could do realized versus unrealized. They they, they could they right. could certainly make that argument. Um, uh, and um, though it's tough because we have so many years. I mean, mark to market rules aren't new. I mean, they've right. been around for years and years and years and years. Um, uh, most of not all of my career, and um, so how could because if you look at the Supreme Court. They took this case up for a reason, right? They didn't have to. Mm, they could have right. just said, nope, nope, not not, not good enough facts. Kind of like they did with Jeffrey, right? Jeffrey, Jeffrey was one of those cases they go in the state tax area. They go, mm, I don't think the facts are good enough. They waited for Wayfair, frankly. And right. Wayfair had better facts. And so it was a cleaner case. Uh, end up with actually a fairly clean decision. Um, I thought in Wayfair, um, but in this case, how, how would they deal with this um, w without just saying to without just having in dictum, you know, just uh, in, in their opinion, say, well, this doesn't mean a wealth tax because they, they could say that. Right. They could rule against the Moors and then and then in the right. opinion say, well, wait a minute. Okay, um, this this is uh, this is this is what this is, and it you know this is not a wealth tax, and a wealth tax doesn't mean a wealth tax would be constitutional. You know, get out your crystal ball, Garrett. It's, uh, we're coming up on Halloween. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think for folks who are skeptical about this case, that is their hope is that this is mostly a reaction to what the Ninth Circuit was saying, and and they um, and several of the justices wanted to get their views out there um, and that there won't be a major shakeup more broadly based on the Morse case. Uh, that said, I think that's far from guaranteed. We, we will see a lot more. Um, I think we'll be able to sort of forecast more potentially once, um, you know, we start seeing uh, hearings and questions from the Supreme Court justices uh, that can often help. It's never, never a guarantee about where things might shake out, but that can often reveal where certain justices are leaning uh, based on the nature of their questions um, even things like body language and, uh, and and voice intonation can help on that. But uh, uh, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the um, the court took this for a reason, and the question is like, is that reason um, more substantive than just a reaction to the Ninth Circuit? And the question is like, on what what is the legal framework or basis we're going to see them sort of start and stop? And as we've talked, as we just mentioned, right? I, I think um, you know, uh, and I think as we've seen in some of the legal analysis from folks. Um, uh, that that can be pretty um, pretty challenging um, to to figure out that that forecloses a at minimum at least some disruption in the business tax uh, regime in the U.S. Uh, and so um, hoping to see more litters fall on this based on those questions. The other thing that's come up a lot is um, this is a court that doesn't have a lot of tax law experience. When you look at the history and biography of many of, of these justices, of course, extremely smart and accomplished individuals, but. Um, that can um, that that also is an interesting fact um, that will um, might mean that a lot of the briefs that come in and arguments are going to matter a lot. Um, and we're, we're seeing this um, many briefs being submitted uh, as friends of the court or for one party or, or the other. Um, and so that's uh, that's another place I think to look to see the the um, the, the the array of arguments that are going to be cast. Um, and, and we already of course have the Morris brief, so that's been helpful to see where they're going, what their line of argumentation is. We'll see how that what follow up questions the court has when they uh when they start talking uh in, in oh, court. So so what's their primary argument on the part of the Moors? Yep. 
Yeah. So, so I, I think it comes down to this question of, of whether or not this particular tax is, uh, you know, a tax on income that would be uh, valid under um, under the U.S. Constitution or it's a uh, closer to a tax uh, on on wealth. Right. And more a direct tax that has not been apportioned. And of course, structurally, it'd be uh, very hard, if not possible to change this so that it is apportioned. So functionally, it would just be struck down and not reversed. Uh, and so um that's that and, and questions in fact and the facts of whether or not uh, there's control here is another aspect of this which is why we were mentioning that earlier um because that that has come up um and the what the Moors are doing here is they're, they're they're sort of um again not not just laying the groundwork for questioning um whether or not this particular tax is uh, a closer to a tax on wealth whether or not similar taxes might be and i think one interesting comment i, th I believe i don't know if this is in the brief or elsewhere was that it's not clear to me that that is the intention of the Moors is to like have a maximalist sort of view to like, you know, sweep clean much of the business tax system. Um, but as we've seen in many other cases, the intentions of the plaintiff or of any particular party in a, in a, in a uh, case are not necessarily what end up actually happening, what, what what's decided by the court. Of course, the court can, the other option we haven't talked about, of course, but they can sort of punt or, or, or not make definitive judgments on a lot of this, right? I, I think, you know, sometimes um, the... You know, we might connect dots in our in our minds, but the justices don't have to do that. And that's often a, a tool that you'll see in a lot of these cases, not just in tax law, but elsewhere in the Supreme Court, where they just aren't going to make a definitive judgment on other things. Even if, you know, in our minds and reading it, it seems like you could connect A, B to A to B to C. Uh, they may try to do something very narrow here and leave any other questions to other cases, which might mean that we might see follow-up cases years later on this on related questions, and that might invite further litigation. That is something else the court will have to decide as to when they balance what the right um, uh, judgment call here is on the, uh, given the facts of this case. For, for sure, this could, this could absolutely open the spigot. Um, final question. So <laughs> this can't be much of a tax for the Moors because there wasn't much of a profit. So mm. who's behind this? Because it's clearly not the Moors by themselves. It's it's way way too expensive to bring mm -hmm. a, a a case like this. So who's who's right. um, who's paying for this? Who's promoting this? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, of course, uh, I don't think there's any sort of um, you know uh, public accounting of who is who's paying for it. I know the you know the attorney of record and the folks who are helping. Of course, is uh, you know Competitive Enterprise Institute has done a lot of work on this, and I think that goes back to this question of like the more narrow facts of this case, and then you know more broadly, I think there is sort of an opportunity uh, for for some folks who are pro more or more in the case of like, hey, we need to see some disruption in the tax system is A, foreclosing the wealth tax discussion for good, because I think that's going to continue to be a discussion. And there are, you know, legal theorists out there, particularly, you know, left-leaning folks who argue like, no, actually, you know, we can we can make this fit into the existing system. Um, and then also, you know, this, this idea that I just mentioned earlier, which is, you know, if we can create an opportunity for some disruption that might help um, create something better. I think that 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 can be a challenge given the you know how that's worked out historically. Um, uh, but the um, so, so I think that that's probably what the the motivation is here, right? Um, of course, a lot of folks may just you know I think there are legitimate thoughts that this particular tax, more narrowly, was not well structured. I think people did did sort of you know bristle at this idea that hey, Congress just comes in and just deems this repatri repatriated and and, and 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 institutes an income inclusion rule. Though that's not, you know, to, to, to be clear, historically uh, anomalous or inconsistent with what we've done in the past. Um, I mean, a lot of the other rules in the international tax regime, including guilty, are incl income inclusion rules. A lot of the discussion in, in the Pillar 2 discussion with the OECD include income inclusion rules. So 
Um, that's probably just another way of going back to what we talked about earlier, which is you start asking questions about one part of this. It's hard to say, what is the limiting principle by which we stop there? Um, and so, but of course, you know, that, that's not something for the plaintiffs. I mean, they're just looking to resolve their case, whether or not that knocks down other things is not necessarily something that they need to take on themselves. That's the responsibility of the court <laughs> uh, to determine and figure out given, um, you know, if you apply a fact, a fact or circumstance here and it applies elsewhere, that's on them to to do. And, and then on Congress to, to fix the laws if if indeed something is unconstitutional. Oh, thank you. So um, thanks, Garrett Watson. Uh, please go to taxfoundation.org. Uh, there's an enormous amount of great information. They do an um, amazing analysis, not just on more, uh, but on state taxes, on um, taxes, uh, on, on the global minimum tax, which I have a very hard time with, mostly because I think it doesn't do any good for any any anybody in the U.S. And uh, it's like, why are we giving away profits from U.S. corporations to other countries makes no sense to me. Um, that is a discussion for another day. Garrett, would it be okay if, uh, as this progresses, that we get you back to do an update? Yes, we'd be happy, happy to update. And yeah, this will be a fast-moving case in the next few months. That'll be awesome. So just remember, everyone, we we have to pay attention to these court cases because they don't just have a ramification. They have a ramification on our clients. They have a ramifications for our practice, our business. I mean, can you imagine? Um, can you imagine the the tax preparation software is even dealing with this? You know, this kind of a disruption. Um, just learning guilty and fitty was hard enough in the first place. Now, you know, there's potential of throwing them out. Um, you know, that that this. Uh, does do they come in and say, well, then we're going to do a value-added tax because value-added tax is 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 an indirect tax. We don't have right. this issue, right? That's that's clearly an, an allowable tax, I, I think. A value-add mm -hmm. tax, just like a sales tax is, um, and and we could do it that way. So uh, there's so many ramifications from this Moore case, and I encourage everybody um, pay attention to what's going on, and uh, and and let your clients know because our clients need to know what the potential is. I, I don't think, um, I, I think, I suspect it'll be a more narrow view because courts tend not to like to disrupt the FISC. Um, they, they don't like to generate refunds. Um, I found in state courts, federal courts, they do not like to generate refunds for broad classes of taxpayers. And uh, with that, you know, hopefully we'll we'll get something a little more narrow, but maybe get some good definition out of this and we'll follow it as we go. And as we um, as we explain it to our clients, kind of keep them abreast, um, our clients will be so appreciative of it. Uh, uh, remember, the more we do for our clients, we always end up with better clients, a better practice and a better life. We'll see y'all next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>